Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Ari Engelberg. Ari is the head of communications and strategic initiatives at Harvard Westlake. We'll talk a bit about what that means. Uh, but Ari is also one of the co-founders of Stamps.com, and he was also a founder of a group of charter schools, charter school network in Los Angeles called the Bright Star Schools. So we'll talk about all of that in addition to some of the teachers and mentors who impacted him, including a congressman in central Michigan. Uh, and we'll get to why and how uh, he was so influential to Ari. Enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. This is The Supporting Cast. Ari Engelberg, welcome to The Supporting Cast. I'm excited to be here. Although you are in a cast. I'm in a cast. It's a walking boot. It's a walking boot. Welcome to the walking boot. What happened? I tore my Achilles tendon. You tore your Achilles? Yeah. Playing basketball, which I shouldn't be doing. Oh, my gosh. Competitively. I mean, when a a professional athlete gets that injury, i.e. Kobe Bryant, that's that's a big deal. That's a big loss for a long time. Well, it's why I told my kids that I'm just like Kobe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Same skill set. I said, finely tuned athletes get, <laughs> get this injury all the time, uh, including me. Um, you were just playing basketball? Just playing in like this adult league at Valley Beth Shalom, like to be fully candid. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm probably the oldest guy in, in the league. Uh-huh. And um, I was, to be honest, I was killing it. I, had, I was having a great game and there were, there were three seconds left in the game and the other team hit a shot to tie the game. And I grabbed the ball out of the basket, stepped out of bounds to inbound it, inbounded it to my cousin, Brett, who's Harvard Westlake alum, uh-huh. and planted to go sort of step in bounds and get the ball back from him in the hope of kind of getting a running start down the floor to take some kind of last second, you know, shot at it. And I felt like uh, somebody kicked me in the heel uh, really, really hard, uh, which is, by the way, exactly as everybody who has yeah. this injury describes it. Um, and... So I turned around thinking that somebody was there, kind of knowing that they shouldn't be, started to fall down. And even before I hit the floor, I knew what it was. Oh. I, could, I could feel something wrong and my heel went numb. It sort of felt like the back of my shoe blew out. It's hard on me. It's especially hard on Jen and the kids. Yeah, Just, I'm sure. You know, sort of it, we woke up this morning and I sort of sat and watched as everybody got ready and there, was, there wasn't much that I could do to contribute. Yeah. And you make big breakfasts, you've I said. I make big breakfasts. Yeah. So that's, Those, that's what Jen and I have to talk about. On this. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. Dad's breakfast. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, got you know. it. So she's been doing well the first two days. So, good. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Jen. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I want to start by talking about you're the head of communications and strategic initiatives. Yes. At Harvard Westlake. That is a broad title. People might be curious, what are the types of projects you work on in that role? Yeah, it's a very good question. I don't have a good answer. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's, we can it's move a on. Weird, it's a weird title. <laughs> it's a weird title. Um, but, you know, the communication side of it is pretty pretty simple. That's uh, our website, social media, all of the print publications that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, media relations, crisis communications, sort of everything that would fall under a standard sort of communication shop. And there's a small team that really does that work day to day that I more or less oversee, 
basically try to stay out of trouble, let them do their jobs. And in terms of crisis communications, you might think, oh, this is a school. What types of communications do, do people need? But there was the pertussis issue it's, that yeah. came. It's the, when the- <laughs> Everything from pandemic to, uh, you know- <laughs> The college admission scandal. Admission which, scandal. Yeah. Which, by the way, Harvard Westlake, as of now, has not has not been touched by, but we, we certainly by. were in the, the news about it. Uh, to, you know, when there are reasons to close school urgently, like uh, with the fires that happened in the fall. Right. Um, the need to get notice out to families and communicate clearly about what our plan of action is. Um, I am ultimately responsible for doing those things. I will say that uh, I've gotten great feedback on, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, <clears throat> when there were school closures, there were texts in the morning, there were voicemails on people's phones, there were emails. Yeah. It seemed like the communication was kind of all-encompassing. And people appreciated it, I think. More is better than, than less. We, yeah, we try to be all-encompassing. I mean, it takes a long time for me to send 15,000 emails individually. But you know, if it's what it takes, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, no, we have a system that allows us the option of broadcasting by text, by phone, by email to any number of our constituent groups or all of our constituent groups. So we can tailor those messages pretty finely to the audience and based on the issue. Mm -hmm. We can schedule the the, the texts as well. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a good asset to have. A lot of schools have these kinds of platforms now yeah. for this type of crisis work. So that's the typical communications piece. That's typical calm. I probably spend, honestly, about a third of my time on communications and the other two-thirds on this sort of strategic initiatives piece, which is definitely squishy. Yeah. Um, and so what are the examples of... Well, the, the, way I like to, the way I like to sort of envelop the... The projects that fall within that um, would be to say that I work with the leadership team, primarily the school president and the board of directors, board of trustees, on various projects that aim at answering the question, what does Harvard-Westlake look like 5, 10, 15, hmm. 20 years from now? And how do we get there? Mm -hmm. And so those could be things like capital projects. So I'm very involved in the River Park campus project, the, the athletic campus that mm -hmm. we're building. Um, and particularly the communication around that and neighborhood relations. Particularly communications on, on that, but um, many other fa sort of facets sure, of, of the strategy. Yeah. It could involve, for example, I'm doing a, um, an analysis of cost of living in Los Angeles ah. uh, because one of the major strategic challenges that not just our school but all schools face in a city like LA where the cost of living is rising so rapidly is how do you recruit and retain great faculty? Yeah in an environment where the cost of living is in many cases rising faster than the, the salaries that we can afford to pay. One could argue it's the greatest challenge we face it, as a school. It, to me, the two greatest are uh, that issue and the other is traffic. Yeah. And traffic because if we are sincerely committed to recruiting the, the best students from all over Los Angeles and traffic gets worse and worse, we're asking students to drive longer and longer, not distances, but but spend more time in their car to get to campus, and at some point it becomes which is its own disadvantage. It, it's a, yeah, which <laughs> it's, it it's is. adding That's an right. additional disadvantage. It's an adding a disadvantage, and it's uh, it becomes at some point sort of almost inhumane to ask students to spend ninety minutes each way and then uh, handle all the uh, the expectations of Harvard Westlake education. Um, I don't know that we're going to solve the traffic problem in L.A. <laughs> no. I don't know that we're going to solve the fact I heard that Elon Musk is working on a tunnel. He's working, yeah. We, we've been digging with him, but it's <laughs> slow going. What are the projects that you find most meaningful to you? I mean, some of this is getting communication out 
uh, can be a passion project for some, uh, but are there pieces of the work that have made you, that have brought you pride or brought you joy in this role? Yeah, good question. Um, I think the things that um, give me the greatest pride are those that are about what does the school look like yeah. many years from now. And getting a chance to be a part of getting a chance shaping that. Yeah, exactly. Because that's sort of your legacy, right? And, you know, I suppose the River Park campus is the low-hanging fruit example because it's, it's a physical campus. There's a physical reminder if we're successful in building what we want to build there um, on an ongoing basis of the work that I did and whatever contribution I made to that project and my um, – it looks like my kids are probably going to miss the window for actually enjoying it as students, but maybe their kids um, someday would. Uh, but certainly as an alum or as an, as an ongoing basketball coach, there are ways for me to say to, – to, to visit that regularly and say that I played a role in, in making this a reality. And if we're successful, I mean that's going to be a campus for the next 100 years. Yeah. So that's, a, that's fairly meaningful. And I think that that speaks to some of the other experiences that I've had working in environments outside of Harbor Westlake, which I'm sure we'll get to, are um, I don't I don't I would never personally characterize them as sort of legacy type projects, but they are certainly enduring projects, whether it's a business or it's nonprofit work that I've done. I've had the I've had the good fortune of being involved in these sort of startup entrepreneurial efforts that um, were successful enough that they endure. And so for me to do work at Harvard-Westlake that has an enduring quality to it and enduring value is most rewarding and yeah. most consistent with what's gotten me excited about showing up to work every day throughout my career. So speaking of enduring, you are yourself an enduring member of this community because you're an alum of the school. Um, so tell me about that. You grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, you had siblings that came to the school. Yeah, I have a younger brother who um, was here during the merger. So he, oh, got, got, he got four years of Harvard and two years of Harvard-Westlake. I was class of 89, so uh, the the merger was announced right after I graduated. Got it. So yeah. you were here when it was all boys. All boys. And tell me about that experience, uh, the experience of being a Harvard School student in the mid-'80s. I really liked it. I um, The fact that it was single gender wasn't – anything to me. It just, it was what it was. Um, I did kind of like the fact that all, you know, not all, but many of my classmates were interested in, in sports and, um, and being active. And so we spent a lot of free periods on what is now a parking lot playing, playing basketball. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember working hard, but I don't remember the same, sense of pressure that I yeah. think our students feel today yeah. to to perform. I don't know that it wasn't necessarily any easier, but I think there were fewer demands. I think there was a, uh, less of a less of a sense from the world around that, you know, if you don't do well, things are going to go badly for you in yeah. life. Um, and so, you know, you did your best and then you went and had fun with your friends. And when college came, you applied to a bunch of schools and you decided which one you wanted to go to. And, you know, I didn't tour any schools. I just, I applied sight unseen to a handful of colleges and got into some. You didn't get, in, get into others. And you picked the one that seemed like the best and, and you went. Mm -hmm. um, so 
a different environment. You know, you could call it a whatever more in, you know more innocent time or something like that. But it sounds probably, like your parents also probably contributed to that. They it didn't sound like they were laying pressure on you and your brother. No, I don't think so. In that way, although a different era for parenting, I suppose as well. Yeah, I think yeah, very different. I mean, the, where we lived in Benedict Hills, my my parents used to let us run around on the streets and play in the streets and yeah. you know, walk to the little market. Um, in the next canyon over, which I would in a million years not let let my kids do today. Um, So there was a lot that was different. Um, And when you were at Harvard School, were there teachers that inspired you in unique ways that you think about today and where your career went to sort of entrepreneurship and into education and the work you're doing now? Sure. And who were those folks? Yeah, there were definitely a few. Um, One of whom is a colleague now, Debbie Reed. Um, hmm. So she was my English teacher in seventh grade, and I felt had the probably most significant impact on my writing of any teacher that I had before or since. How so? Just the the constructive feedback she gave, the encouragement that she gave to um, express myself in a, in a way that I was comfortable doing. Um, I think just basic writing fundamentals that uh, because they were bringing students in from all kinds of sixth grade environments that there was a level set in terms of writing fundamentals. And I felt that that that's where I really kind of moved up the growth curve significantly. Um, And, you know, I think that with all the things that kids learn and all the advanced classes you take in computer science and physics and and who knows what else at at a place like Harvard-Westlake, let alone in college, that, you know, basic writing and communication skills are fundamental to almost any career you're going to, going to enter and, and really in many ways are fundamental to having successful personal relationships even outside of the work environment. And so I'm very grateful for that foundation. Uh, another teacher would be Steve Marsden, who was a chemistry teacher, retired oh, maybe somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago, I think already, maybe closer to 10 years ago. Um, he taught, I took chemistry from him in 10th grade and then he rolled out the very first AP chemistry curriculum that the school had during my 11th grade year. And there were 15 of us who were foolish enough to take AP chem from him. And we were basically his um, crash test dummies, I guess, for this AP chemistry class that he was sort of inventing as the year went along. And it was a an absolute bear of a class, mm-hmm. way more work than anybody was, um, you know, had believed it would be or was really cut out for. But what it did is it brought all 15 of us together. We all studied together. He allowed us to sort of collaborate in a way that today with the honor code you could never do. And we could all, you know, group work on the homework. And um, that created sort of a, a, a learning experience that I'd never had before where 15 of us were learning together and sort of struggling together and ultimately succeeding at one level or another together. Um, you know, and all the while he maintained a sense of humor about it. And he said, this is all, you know, this is fun. This is fun chemistry. And, we're, and meanwhile, it was brutal. But there was something very um, rewarding about it. And we all became very close to him because we spent hours a day in, in the science department office commiserating over whatever homework he'd given us uh, or whatever lab we were trying to do. And uh, he's another one who I feel like the lesson I took from that was you're going to you're going to encounter or be asked to do things professionally in life that are very difficult. Mm -hmm. And that 
you should dive in and do your best and your best is probably going to be good enough. And when it's not, you lean on the people around you and that that makes you stronger and you get through it. I've forgotten everything I learned in chemistry, so (laughs) there you have. Do you ever think about, um, because the school is making great strides now to think about kind of happiness and balance and ease the pressure. And we talk about sort of pressure mostly in a negative uh, connotation here for good reason, many good reasons. But um, you're describing a real challenge that you guys had. I don't know if I can get through this. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to rely on my peers to to help me. Yep. We're going to have to collaboratively get through this together. Is there a risk of leaning so far in one direction that by removing the challenge, you remove all those lessons that you learned in that chemistry class? Is there yeah, there is. Is there great value to that rigor even when we try to take our foot off the gas slightly? There is. I think if you don't test yourself, you don't know what you're capable of. Um, when I was working in the charter schools, uh, one of the one of our mottos that our founder sort of – he didn't coin it, but he adopted it and we used it quite a bit – was no pressure, no diamonds. Right? Is that – what is a diamond? It's coal that's been under intense pressure for, for millennia. Wow. Right, and what comes out is a diamond, and that's sort of a little bit of a metaphor for, I think, sometimes how education can work, um, or how a, an academic experience can work, is that yes, you test yourself, and you push and push, and there is this pressure, and if it's too much pressure, then the coal shatters; it never turns into a diamond, right? Um, but if there's the right amount of pressure applied over time, then you have this perfect thing that wow. emerges, and. I don't know that you want to lead philosophically <laughs> in your in your articulation of your school's uh, you know mission or values or vision by saying that we uh, aspire to the right amount of pressure, but uh, I but the I do slo- certainly being in communications the slogan Harvard Westlake we like diamonds is that's better than we probably like yes yeah probably not that. what we're trying to convey no, but there is something to be said for uh, no pressure no diamonds. So you leave Harvard School uh, and you go to Berkeley. I go to Michigan for a year. Oh, sorry, Michigan yeah. for a year. So I went to the University of Michigan, sight unseen. Um, I applied to a bunch of schools, uh, ended up getting into the freshman honors program in Michigan, which sounded really impressive and important. And Michigan had just come off of a Rose Bowl victory and a national championship in basketball in the same year. And I figured, well, this is perfect. It's yeah. a big school with great sports. And there's this thing called the honors program that sounds really cool. I'm going to get preferential you know, class scheduling and these kinds of things. I um, I didn't love Michigan off the bat. I was very homesick. I w- it was definitely kind of a faraway place for me, um, you know, a bit of a foreign land going to the Midwest. And, you know, this is this was an era in which um, you weren't just physically removed, but you were sort of more electronically removed than t- today. Yeah. You could FaceTime your parents anytime you want. Back then it was, you know, you call long distance, but you have to call after 11 o'clock because the rates are too high because there was no such thing as sort of universal unlimited data. Uh, and so, you know, I would make a phone call at home home every night at 11 o'clock Eastern time to say hi to my parents. And uh, so, I, you know, I found it a hard transition being away um, and I – which was compounded by the fact that um, the summer before I went to college, I met Jen, who's now my wife, um, all the way back then. Hmm. And she was um, younger and so she was still back here in L.A. And uh, so that was also – hard because, um, you know, I was getting to know her and missing her as, as well as missing my kids. I mean, my, my kids, my, uh, <laughs> my parents. Yep. Um, 
and uh, and my brother. I should I don't want to leave out my brother. <laughs> Missing my brother too. Um, and so uh, I made a decision about halfway through the year to uh, apply to transfer to to Berkeley, and spent um, I actually spent four years there. So I did a fifth year of undergrad, and um, and, and loved it. Double majored and had a blast. Were there people there who influenced you, either professors or friends? Yeah, there were mentors. There were a couple. Uh, one was a professor, and the other was somebody who I met as the result of a professor. Um, so I was a poli sci and psych major, and on the poli sci side of things, in the fall of 1992, I took it, which is the year Bill Clinton was elected, and then and Democrats sort of swept into Congress mm-hmm. in that year. It's a big blue wave. I was I took a survey class on Congress, poli sci 103. And there were probably 435 people in the class, and there were 435 congressional districts. And uh, everybody in the class was randomly assigned to a congressional district. And the district that I was given was the first congressional district of Michigan, which is the upper peninsula of Michigan and the lower, the upper half of the lower peninsula of Michigan. So it's actually about a half of Michigan geographically, but only about one twelfth of Michigan population-wise. Okay. And very sort of rural, conservative area. And it was an open race between. Um, a Republican named Phil Rupi and a Democrat named Bart Stupak. So I wrote this article about the race and I did it from Berkeley by making, you know, this is pre-internet. So I was making phone calls to these little papers in Traverse City and Houghton, Michigan yeah. and Iron Mountain, Michigan and Sault Ste. Marie. I've been to, to Traverse f- been City Traverse, or okay. near there for it's a, a wedding. megalopolis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, uh, who was going to win and why and did a lot of sort of phone calls to local people. And I guess I got interested enough that I, I I did research that, as it turns out, the professor thought was fairly interesting. I was, you know, dialing voters and dialing local reporters to kind of get the skinny on the race. So I wrote a paper, turned it in, and, uh, you know, the end of the semester, probably Thanksgiving time after the election, uh, went away for uh, winter break. And uh, I guess it must have been just before winter break, got the paper back from the professor, got an A on it. And Without telling me, the professor sent the paper to Bart Stupak, to the the Democrat who ended up winning huh. the race. I had did he no, I had, know? Did the professor he know the? Nope. Just sent it to him. Wow. Uh, and Bart Stupak was had been a um, a one term uh, state legislator in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and a longtime state trooper, um, a policeman. Huh. Uh, and he was showing up in Washington uh, on you know January third to take office, and there's this paper on his desk, presumably. Uh, I don't know exactly how it got to him, but uh, this paper on his desk that I had written about the race, and he read it, and uh, I was sitting um, in my apartment in Berkeley in maybe the second week of January of 1993, a week after he took the oath of office. And the phone rang and it was Bart Stupak calling to say, hey, I read your paper. Uh, and I didn't even know that the professor had sent it to him. Wow. And he said, I read your paper. Uh, why don't you come out to D.C. and we'll talk about it. And I said, talk about what? Like, thank you. That's, I'm flattered that you're calling me. Talk about what? He said, I don't know. Let's just come and talk. Maybe you'll, you know, do some more writing and you'll sort of figure out, well, you know, we've got this really interesting first term where – Democrats were swept into office. He was the first Democrat elected in a very conservative district in Michigan in about 100 years. Mm. Um, And between the time he was elected and the time he took office, so between November and January, uh, this was a period of time where the 
um, Congress was rat, was um, closing a lot of military bases, so I downsized the military and saved money. And the single largest employer in his district was an Air Force base called K.S. Sawyer Air Force Base, which was one of the bases of the Strategic Air Command that was loaded with B-52s that had nuclear weapons and they were constantly in the, in the skies because little known fact – the fastest way to get to Moscow from the United States is from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan hmm. over over the pole. Oh, right. So we had B-52s circling the North Pole with nuclear weapons for 40 years. And they came out principally out of K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base. And uh, they were closing K.I. Sawyer. And so he sort of saddled with this major, major base closure and this weird district where he's a Democrat, but Democrats have never been reelected, not even once in his district. And And Clinton is there and the Democrats have taken over Congress. And he says, come on out and we'll talk about it. So I flew out there and uh, I ended up uh, – that's why I did a fifth year. I ended up basically spending an entire year writing about his first term of in Congress and uh, traveled extensively with him. Almost in, like as a journalist district. kind of writing about it? Yeah, or? it was weird. It's sort of a friend slash journalist. I huh. mean I, I got to know his family very well. Wow. Um, small world. His, his uh, older son actually lives out here in L.A. now. And has a son of his own who is looking – they're looking at elementary schools. <laughs> and I actually asked Debbie Reed to meet with them <laughs> wow. um, a few weeks ago. Full because circle. Because they live out in the San Gabriel Valley and she knows every school in the San Gabriel Valley. Of course. Valley. So just to ask you know, for her advice, so full circle. Um, and uh, yeah, so sort of as a student journalist, student documentarian of his term – wrote what ended up being – I wouldn't call it a thesis, but it was a very substantial paper of a few hundred pages that um, kind of chronicled his first term and tried to make some, you know, mildly interesting observations about what it's like to represent rural America and the changes that were going on in rural America at the time. And um, that paper ended up getting published in a, in a collection of, of sort of poli-sci essays that um, Berkeley – the Institute of Governmental Studies at Berkeley produced. Wow. And um, so that's a long way of saying that the two people who I think were most influential to me were the professor who had the nerve to send my paper to this congressman yeah. without asking me. And then and then as a result of that, the introduction I got to Bart Stupak. Right. Because I would say up until that point, I was not somebody who was much of a risk taker. The fact that um, this congressman who, you know, at the time I was – you know, it was 20 or 21 maybe, um, calls me up and says, hey, let's hang out and you can just spend time with me and my family and I'll invite you in and you can write about all this stuff and we'll have sort of candid conversations about, um, was, um, you know, gave me sort of a shot of confidence that uh, I that nobody had given me before. And a world that had opened up. Completely. There's all these op possibilities and opportunities. Completely. Which sort of gets to you being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So how do you get from there – to being one of the founders of Stamps.com. So I was in the computer lab one night at the Anderson School UCLA back when they had computer labs. And um, I think I was checking my email, which at the time you could only do at school. And um, a classmate of mine was sitting in the lab next to me printing resumes for uh, and stuffing them in envelopes because he was looking for a summer internship in investment banking. And at some point in the resume stuffing process, he ran out of stamps for the envelopes. <laughs> and I knew him, but not well. You know, we were sort of casual friends from from our we were section mates, but we hadn't ever been on a project together. Uh, and he sort of said, "Oh, this stinks! I'm going to have to bike to the federal building tomorrow to get stamps because I don't think I didn't. I mean, where do you get stamps? <laughs> There's no like the post, the closest post office yeah. in in Westwood was the federal building, right?" 
and this is before they sold stamps and ATMs, and now they don't even sell the them. student store. I don't know if they. Yeah, I mean, there was probably else. other places on campus you could get them, but his comment was, "I'm going to have to bike to the federal building," and. We sort of looked at each other and said, well, you know, you're doing this mail merge in Microsoft Word and you're rattling off a whole bunch of addresses of investment banks and you're, you're pre-printing envelopes and you're even pre-barcoding the envelope and you're putting your return address up in the corner so it all looks nice and formal. Why can't you just print the stamp at the same time? It would seem that that would be a convenience. And we both sort of said, yeah, that's not the probably not the worst idea in the world. Um, and this was a few days before school started. So we said, well, we'll just we'll spend a little time kind of kicking it around and seeing what kind of research we can do, see if the post office has ever considered something like this. And um, is this and just in terms of the internet at yeah. the time, were people was there was there internet commerce at that Very time? Very early. So Very this early. was this is nineteen ninety six. Okay. So So people weren't buying airline tickets yet necessarily. No. There was Yahoo but not Google. For okay. example, right. Okay. Um, yeah. There was AOL. Uh huh. eBay had just sort of emerged as the first marketplace very early. Right. I called the post office, not knowing what else to do. The USPS.gov website was basically like a brochure site. It wasn't a functional e-commerce <laughs> sure. site with you know directories and information. Oh, the dial-up. I mean, everything was yeah, so slow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, called the post office, and it took about you know called the main line in Washington D.C. Um, at L'Enfant Plaza. And it took probably three weeks to get to the right person. Uh, and as it turns out, in this you know, unit of the post office called metering technology management, they had been thinking about, actively thinking about what they called PC postage, right? electronic postage. How do you um, take the functionality? PC meaning personal computer. Personal computer, yeah. Okay. How do you take the functionality of a postage meter, like a Pitney Bowes type machine, right? a big metering machine that yep. makes that red blotch in the corner that you've seen a million times? How do you take that functionality and sort of scale it down to home and desktop use? So in another example of sort of for in my life, all roads leading back to Harvard, Harvard Westlake, um, I was at a New Year's Eve party for a friend of mine who is still to this day one of my best friends who not only introduced me to my wife, but his daughter is now here, a senior at Harvard Westlake. Wow. And um, his, I was at his parents' house for a New Year's Eve party in 1990. This was the end of 96 and end of 97. Sorry, end of 97. And his um, started talking to his dad about this. And his dad had done a bunch of software work, worked for Aerospace Corp and a bunch of other places where they hired very smart people. And um, said, yeah, that, you, you guys are onto something. I'd like to help we'll kind of work on this with you. And he ended up making, uh, getting involved with the company, but in, importantly making an introduction to the venture capital firm that ended up funding the company. Wow. And so we raised a first round of funding and began building a prototype for the post office to poke at. And the post office had an interest in this because it's another way to sell more stamps. I mean, yeah, it's another generate revenue, revenue stream. Exactly. Make the make the use of their product more convenient so that they can continue to compete aggressively with UPS and FedEx and others. Got it. And then also make the use of their product more secure. So postage meters, um, older meters were actually very easy to crack into. They, if you, if you remember, if you ever seen like an old gas, like a, a gas station, yeah, where it's like a physical dial, yep. it's not electronic. Yeah. So that's how postage meters used to be. And people who wanted to could literally like crack open or mileage meter. things in old cars. Exactly. Way, right. Yeah. They could crack open the meter and roll it back and yeah. steal postage. Yeah. And the Postal Inspection Service had determined that it was like nearly a billion dollar a year problem. So it was worth investing real resources into figuring out, well, how do we make these meters more secure? 
But one of the ways is to move from sort of a, an analog to a digital system, right? So our system ended up doing just that. It's, I don't want to say fraud proof, but it is a very strong system from an information integrity and security standpoint because all the information is, is encrypted and because the stamps themselves have these things called digital signatures embedded in them, which is basically a very long string of digits that uh, is essentially unreplicable. Um, and and then we had all sorts of physical security because instead of having all these meters scattered around offices all over the country, whether it was an old style meter or an e-stamp type of meter, we had one big meter in a data center in Irvine that was bulletproofed and had all kinds of biometric access controls and had all kinds of redundancies built in and had 24-7 man security. And we could demonstrate to them that the security of their postage, you know, their, their kind of Uber meter was was intact. And so they ultimately approved the system for distribution. Wow. You started this big company. You've had this successful uh, kind of entrepreneurial career. Why come back and be a history teacher and a basketball coach at your alma mater? Yeah. Um, well, that's a really good question. Um, I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And the dot-com market had sort of imploded, so there wasn't a lot of risk capital being applied to new ideas at that moment. One of the people I called was Tom Hudnut. Hmm. And I'll be candid. I'm not sure Tom Hudnut remembered who I was. I mean, I was not a <laughs> – I mean, I was a good student, but I, I wasn't like a stand – I wasn't valedictorian. I was a decent athlete, but I wasn't the, you know, big man on campus athletically. Um but he took a meeting with me and, um, you know, we were chatting about this and that. And, and he said, you know, have you ever considered teaching? And I had not really considered teaching. Um, but I had always worked – I had done a lot of work with kids. When I was at Cal, I tutored in the Oakland Unified Schools. I was a camp counselor for several years, several summers. And um, he said, hey, you know, you should go talk to Catherine Holmes Chuba, who was the chair of the history department, who was ironically my, my ninth grade history teacher. Um, her first year of teaching was my ninth grade year. Hmm. And um, he said, you should go upstairs and talk to her. I think they have a need. Uh, and I went upstairs and they offered me a position teaching a couple sections of U.S. history. And I went home, or maybe it was a couple of days later, you know, my wife and I were talking. And I figured, well, I don't, you know, why not? It's a part-time responsibility. It should be fun. Um, it'll give me a taste of what education's like. And um, so I said yes. So I ended up teaching U.S. history in, I don't know what that year was, 2001, 2002. And how long did you stay eight during years, that? Eight years. Eight years? Yeah, yeah. So then when do you help launch the Bright Star Schools? Yeah, and so how does that, a, how do you go from working here to saying, I, I really want to start a yeah. charter school network? So uh, a friend of mine from law school uh, had been in the Teach for America program prior to law school. And we met in law school and we actually coached a youth basketball team down at the Crenshaw YMCA together during law school. Stayed in touch after law school. Uh, he was working in a law job and went to a Teach for America alumni event about charter schools. And he obviously was uh, sort of fascinated by the prospect of starting a charter school. He applied to take a sabbatical from his law firm, which they granted him, in order to write, sort of speculatively write a charter for the school that he would want to create. And um, he called me up among a number of other people and said, hey, I think I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of starting a charter school. Do you want to be on the board? And 
I honestly didn't really know what a charter school was uh, at the time. There were really very few charter schools in L.A., and I had just gotten my feet wet in education, but really only on the independent school side of things. And the whole public school world was a mystery to me. I, had, I was not a product of public schools, so I was really not well-versed in how LAUSD works or how public education works in California. But, um, you know, he's a good guy, and it seemed like a good project. So I said, sure, I'll be on your board. And I ended up becoming the board chair. And uh, we opened this thing called Stella Middle Charter Academy, which is a middle school in, in West Adams neighborhood. About f- four years into that project, we had opened the middle school and we had opened a, a high school. And we were approached by an organization, and they were both very successful. And um, we were approached, we, Bright Star, were approached by um, an organization in Colorado called Charter School Growth Fund to take a bunch of money to open a bunch more schools. And part of the deal was that if they're going to give us all this money, that we're going to kind of grow our capacity and increase the sort of, the, you know, the, the, the capacity of our leadership team. And so we began to have a number of conversations about how could we sort of augment or supplement the, the immense talent of our founder with other people uh, to help sort of scale the organization. And because I had worked closely with him and, and uh, we had been successful in that relationship and getting the schools to where they were, um, I agreed to sort of slide into an, like an interim executive director kind of role where he would become more of a chief academic officer and I would sort of handle the business and ops and finance part of the world. And um, we ended up not taking the money that we were offered uh, because we just didn't like the terms of the deal. But I stayed on as executive director. It became permanent. And we began sort of a slow and steady growth. And so what started out as Stella Academy became Bright Star Schools, went from one to two, then to three. Then we acquired a school, five. Um, By the time I left, it was eight schools. And it's now nine schools. Wow. Yeah. And can you speak to how – the theme of full circle, how – the relationship with the Bright Star schools and Harvard Westlake uh, currently? Yeah, well, really exists. from day one, I mean, from the time that I was a volunteer board member at, at what was Stella Academy, I would talk about that experience with my colleagues at Harvard Westlake when I was back at Harvard Westlake teaching. When I became executive director, I would regularly have conversations with um, whether it was Tom Hudnut about, or then, then Rick about ways that the organizations could partner. Jean Hybrex got very interested and ended up joining the board of, of directors at Bright Star for, she was on the board for six or seven years. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, um, I think her role, which were her title was head of school, right? So, I mean, the head of Harvard Westlake was on the Bright Star board. Um, spoke with uh, Elizabeth Gregory at length about um, making sure that Bright Star applicants to Harvard Westlake were given you know, fair consideration, considering that it was a school nobody had ever heard of. Yeah. And um, and that relationship continued to grow. And then, you know, organically things things happened. There was a, a handful of kids here who wanted to do a sort of a virtual tutoring program. And they ended up starting a tutoring program because somebody else who knew of Bright Star through me had referred them to Bright Star. And lo and behold, this tutoring program emerges. And I go to one of our schools, one of our Bright Star campuses one day, and I see this tutoring thing happening, and I say, "Well, who are the kids on the other end of this virtual tutoring like?" And they're the Harvard Westlake kids. I didn't even know. Wow. Um, so yeah, programs like that emerged, and you know that partnership kind of continued to blossom. And now that I'm back in the Harvard Westlake world, I'm doing even more to 
kind of continue to formalize that partnership. Right. There are Bright Start kids coming, what, Tuesdays and Thursdays? Tuesdays and Thursdays. To our middle we school. Have, that's right. We have um, about 30 Bright Star students, 10 from each of the three different middle schools that they operate, kind of um, convene on the Harvard Westlake Middle School campus for a whole menu of um, academic enrichment activities, things that they wouldn't normally get um, at, at their Bright Star campuses, um, taught by our faculty. Uh, fully paid for by Harvard Westlake, and um, and can you speak just sort of how the Bright Star partnership is? It's it's not satisfying all of Harvard Westlake's ambition toward a, a purpose beyond itself, but how it is sort of the the tip of what could be a larger iceberg in this regard, in a way that we are trying to impact Los Angeles in a broader way. Yeah, um, or hope to. The bottom line is that um, as an institution that enjoys nonprofit status, we have an obligation to provide a public benefit. Right? We're a nonprofit public benefit corporation. Yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, you could argue that the public benefit uh, that Harvard Westlake provides is an education to those who attend the school and that certainly there are students here who are on financial aid, full financial aid, and that there's some public benefit in doing that. Um, there are those who will say that, um, that that's not a broad public benefit and that how can you do things that are beyond Certainly, student volunteerism is another um, another way. But a third way is for the institution, for Harvard Westlake itself, not its students, not its faculty, but for the institution to say, hey, there's an issue that we care about that affects our city and that as an institution, we've developed um, assets, whether those are people, technology, curriculum, systems that can be applied to solving that problem. And to better, and as a result, bettering the lives of students or or families who don't attend Harvard Westlake, never will attend Harvard Westlake, um, but who can benefit from the things that we do. And um, so that's where the Bright Star Partnership comes in. For years and years and years, there has been a commitment on the part of Harvard Westlake faculty and Harvard Westlake students to volunteerism, and it comes in all shapes and sizes. The you know thousands and thousands of hours a year are volunteered by our students at soup kitchens and animal shelters and, you know, neighborhood cleanups and Habitat for Humanity and the list goes on and on and it's all wonderful work. Um, but that is sort of a decentralized impact that's spread across many different causes, it's spread across a wide geography. Uh, it's not something where the institution has said we're going to stick a flag in the ground because this is an issue we care about and we're going to make a difference uh, in the lives of, of families and we're going to measure that impact. So before we leave, I wanted to ask a few just kind of get to know you, standard get to know you questions. Yeah. And I thought thinking about kind of how to frame these with each podcast. And I kind of want to frame them around Los Angeles. And we are known for our food. We are known for our movies. Yep. Uh, we are known for our kind of natural beauty and and weather and habitat. So starting with the first one of those, I actually know the answer to this first one. Okay. Your favorite movie, the movie you can always go back to. I think I know what it you is for you because we've it. talked about this. I thought. I can't say the answer because it's it's the answer to the, um, you know, on a, a lot of a lot of like your banking websites, your security, <laughs> your security question is what's your favorite movie. <laughs> I don't think I can answer it. Oh, really? I can lie. Okay. It's Ghostbusters. Okay, so Ghostbusters is mm -hmm. your fake favorite movie. Hundred percent. Okay, that's fine. We can yeah. we can move on. I know what it is. <laughs> Offline, we can have a conversation. If you hack my uh, Wells Fargo account, I and uh, it's one I, of my favorite way, movies. I, I don't make a Wells Fargo as well. Uh, okay, so second question: favorite meal in Los Angeles? Favorite? It could be it can be gourmet. It can be uh, a food truck. 
is there something in LA that you would go, yeah, man, sure. if I'm, it's my birthday, it's my my last meal, I'm on death row. Uh, carnies. Carnies. Hot in, dog. Okay. It's the carny dog, split grilled with cheese, no tomato, spicy mustard. Whoa, that's specific. See, I like that. Yeah. That was better than the first answer. The first answer it's was- a great answer. Yeah, it is a yeah. great answer. And that's the one in, in Studio City. Yeah. Got yeah, it. Right down the street. How yeah. often do you get that meal? Probably mm-hmm. not that often. Not as often as I as you would like. As I would like, yeah. but more often than I should. Understood. Um, I don't know, once a month, probably. Whoa, once a month? That's eh, pretty good. Maybe not even that. Okay. Once every couple months. That's pretty probably. good. More like once every couple months. Third, favorite place in Los Angeles. You can say you oh, my home with my family, but try to think more broadly. A, a place that, uh, or you could be a part of town. Yeah. Um, farmer's it, Market. Which Farmer's Market? The, the farmer's market. Oh, the, the farmer's yeah, market. The original on Third. And Sorry, on Third and Fairfax. Yeah. Yeah. What do you like yeah. about the farmer's market? It's kind of old LA. My um, my, I went to elementary school on that side of the hill, and um, my grandmother would often. You went to the Center for Education. Center for, yeah. 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 So my grandmother would often pick me up from school because my dad was working and my mom worked my dad's office, and um, she would take us, take me and my brother to the farmer's market, and. We would wander around and get a snack. And to this day, I still go to the farmer's market. If I'm anywhere in the vicinity, I'll make a point of going there. Um, there's a, a stand at the West End called Charlie's. It's just a little um, coffee shop stand, and they make the best grilled cheese sandwiches. And I'll order two grilled cheese sandwiches. Oh, I, do okay. that. I do that two or three times a year. So that's your second favorite meal, I suppose. Yeah, that's right up there. It's not <laughs> It's not quite as good as Carney's, but it, I don't think they've cleaned the grill in 50 years, so it's just got a lot of great – there's a lot of goodness baked into that grill. Got it. Yeah, fried into the Last question before we leave. Yeah. What is your best? I am a father of a 14-month-old yep. daughter. You're the parent of a couple of boys. What's your best parenting advice? Either that you've received or that you – it could be an original or it can be something wow. passed to you. It's probably, the, it's probably an advice or axiom that applies to a lot of walks of life. But maybe Does it involve like- a diamond? Okay. <laughs> apply for, intense pressure. Any f- sort of rare earth metal. Apply then. intense pressure until they crack. <laughs> that's, that's that's the motto. I think it's probably le- something like less is more. That I, I think that uh, this is a world in which it, you don't want to think of yourself as a helicopter parent, but it's easy to become one without even knowing it. And that um, kids probably in the end, it would it would seem based on the data that kids were happier in previous generations, prior generations than they are today on the whole. And there are a lot of factors that might contribute to that. You know, it could be the perverse effects of video games. It could be, you know, media saturation. It could be the the onslaught of negative news that they get from, from all different sources. Um, you know, but some of it might be... Um, overparenting. Overparenting. And um, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of parenting too much, and I, I do it all the time. And if I were to, you know, it's easy for me to give that advice to you, but if I were to look back on my own parenting and give myself advice, it would be just just chill out. Just chill out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ari Engelberg, thank you so much. Sure. This was great. For joining me on the supporting cast. This was fun. And thanks for all the work you do on behalf of of our students and students beyond our uh, our walls at our website. And you too. I'm excited. All right. Thanks so much. Take care.